Thanks for joining us again. Today we're going to be talking about uh, classic, or maybe not so classic, <laughs> 80s television shows. We're also kind of, uh, what, mourning the loss of our Christmas, well, holiday extravaganza. <laughs> our, our first big technical snag here in the history of the show, the hard drive ate my homework. <laughs> So there's a show floating out there that maybe someday we'll find it again. <laughs> but it was just, it was a festival of Christmas cheer and urine. <laughs> well, leave that in their minds and they'll just wonder forever. A little tease. <laughs> it's kind of like the smile of our... <laughs> yeah, the Beach Boys smile. <laughs> 40 years from now, we're going to unearth it in a special edition five... Five discs. Or whatever they're doing then. Box set. They'll probably just be implanted directly into a chip inside your head by then. I can handle that. But for uh, for '80s television shows, you know, when you're when you're a kid growing up in the '80s and you don't control the purse strings, and you, know, you have to vet the movies you want to go see through your parents a lot of the time because they're the ones driving you there. <laughs> uh, television can be a very important entertainment medium in uh, in the life of someone who's growing up. So I imagine both of us spent. A lot of time. Quality time. A fair yeah. amount of time <laughs> watching television in the 80s. So I'm curious to, uh, you know, sometimes there are shows that stand the test of your own personal time. Yes. That you can still enjoy. I've kind of stuck to those on my list. You know, ones that I still get a lot of enjoyment out of. Still champion to other people, even though they look <laughs> at me cross-eyed. So I'm curious to see the kind of stuff you've got on your list, too. Are there any... Uh, I don't know, do you think there were any overriding themes or anything that emerge in, uh, in 80s television? You know, we're talking about the era of Aaron Spelling and Stephen J. Cannell. Uh, they were both kind of holdovers from the 70s, but were still, you know, very much had their imprint on the 80s, plus uh, the return of the sitcom mm-hmm. and, and things like that. So. Well, I think two things, blocks of comedy and the... Uh, the tackling tough subjects, I mean, you know, I mean, whether it's Different Strokes or Punky Brewster or Cosby Show, they always had, like, that some issue, and I don't think they they really kind of focused on it. I mean, I think maybe in the 70s they did some on those shows, but it seemed like in the 80s they kind of exploded. I mean, with that whole Ronald Reagan era and the don't say no, you know, say no to drugs sort of thing. It just don't say no to drugs. <laughs> Yes, the dawn of the very special episode. Exactly. You know, a lot of people uh, give credit to Blossom and Fresh Prince <laughs> in the 90s for popularizing the very special episode, but you're absolutely correct that the very special episode does have its roots in the 80s. I mean, to this day, there are people who still cringe about the 
<clears throat> pedophilia episode of Different Strokes with Dudley with his shirt off next to the bicycle repairman. How is that the one that I remember, Dawson's? <laughs> it scarred a lot of people. And if I'm not mistaken, Mr. Carlson, Gordon Jump, played the pedophile in that mm. episode. If I've just disparaged Gordon Jump unnecessarily, <laughs> I apologize, but I'm pretty sure that that's... I don't remember. I remember the episode, and I remember, I remember, I still remember seeing people talk about it on the Internet. It's like, I can't believe, or I remember, well, Gordon Jump, well. And I think Gordo <laughs> was going after Dudley, and then somehow Arnold got ensnared in the whole thing. This still shows a little bit of tentativeness, though. You know, we can't have our star <laughs> being sexually objectified by Gordon Jump. Uh, hey, Dudley! Hey, Dudley, we need you this week. Oh, damn it. The Ned Beatty of sitcoms. Great. <laughs> yeah, that's... That and, well, and that in the blocks, you know, like uh, comedy or the Cosby Show. Must-see TV. Must-see TV. The first must-see TV lineup. Cosby Show. Show. still using now. Cosby Show, Family Ties, Cheers, Night Court, and then capped off by, for the first part of the decade, Hill Street Blues, then for the latter part, L.A. Law. Wow. That was your first must-see TV block. And I think, uh, you know, it's been so long ago, I think that there are people that uh, don't recall that that was the origination of that catchphrase on NBC. I mean, my God, and <laughs> the resurrection of NBC is a story into itself, you know, of Brandon Tartikoff coming in and... Oh. Yeah. Saving that network in the 80s after the it kind of reached its, or well, plummeted to its depths in the <laughs> 70s with Super Train and shows that, you know, Super Train, which was basically Love Boat on a Train. Oh, I don't remember that. The most I'd, expensive flop ever produced in television history. And they've kind of gone for a circle, full circle. Because they back on the they, bottom. They suck. <laughs> Well, you know my favorite TV show of the 80s. Oh, yes, I do. So before I go off on a tangent, you might want to... <laughs> well, I'll talk about one that I just saw like two weeks ago. Uh, you know, the, Now, with all the advent of digital TV, they have the second channels, and the second channels, or third or fourth or something, they rerun old TV shows. So uh, in here, one of the stations runs... I can't remember what the name of it is, but it is on RTV, Retro Television. No, actually, uh, it's for 19. I don't know if you've seen that one. But they have uh, lots of New Heart and uh, 70s era, but then they also ran Bosom Buddies. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Which, uh, as I. The the opening music was Billy Joel. it was my life. My, it's my life. Yeah. But, but not him saying it. Well, now they changed it completely, because I thought that's what they did. But now it's a Patti LaBelle song. Really? And it doesn't match up with the intro at all. So it's like all the beats are off. So it just it makes no sense. It's like they just, you know, turned the radio on and then ran the opening, because it just doesn't... <laughs> Yeah, that was that was really strange. The Bosom Buddies is definitely one of the better remembered two season shows in the history of television because oh, yeah. because it gave us Tom Hanks. Yeah, and Peter Scolari, who he says he's still friends with. Yeah, <laughs> that's got to be an interesting friendship. Yeah. Hey, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, I'm great. I'm working at a car dealership. What are you doing? Oh, I'm winning another Oscar. <laughs> 
Because it's true, Scalari does kind of pop up every now and again in these uh, bit parts in, in Tom <laughs> Hanks movies. But you're thinking, you know, if Tom Hanks really was that fond of him, he can do a little bit more than that. Maybe at least make him the best friend. <laughs> but not the game show host on... Uh, uh, oh, the the the, the wonders, uh, right? yeah. the way you make me feel, or that thing you do. That thing you do. Well, you know, Scalar is busy with his cardio ships. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's Google that. Scalari Chevrolet. <laughs> See if you can find it anywhere. Oh, <laughs> uh, sorry, Peter. So you, you watched? I, I, I thought it was a really cool, the, the premise of the show is that they are it's a ridiculous premise. They they are in they are in advertising and the place that they want to stay only lets women live there. So they cross dress as women and then they also become friends with the women as their male counterparts and the male counterpart tries to hit on one of the girls that he lives with. I mean what? And they're ex- and, and they're in advertising. I mean, it's, it's just what the? How did they pitch that and get it? And to this day, I still sometimes find myself when someone knocks on the door, going, "Who is it?" Because that was the big joke in the show. They would be there, you know, wrapped in their towels with their hairy chest after getting out of the shower, and somebody would knock on the door at the hotel, and they would have to slip into their female voice. And then rush to throw on their wig and crap like that. It really is a ridiculous show, but it's it's finally remembered. Yeah, well, it is funny and uh, entertaining, and I think that's kind of what I think about the '80s. Is that there's this weird juxtaposition of shiny, happy '80s uh, fun and Gordon Jump molesting and Gordon Jump molesting people. Yeah, it just you know, and it just switches. I mean, I think they didn't get. Uh, subtlety yet. <laughs> no, definitely not. Because <laughs> you really can't do both at the same time, but I'm pretty sure at some point in a Gordon Jump, you know, harrowing episode of pedophilia, they also had incredibly hilarious hijinks. <laughs> Just sort of like, at least when 90210 did it later, they at least had some, you know, you know, some weight to the entire episode, not just, you know, madcap hijinks. Oh, hi, I shot somebody. <laughs> Now, television uh, definitely hit its stride in the 90s when you had shows like <laughs> NYPD Blue and ER. Oh, yeah. And uh, at one point, uh, they were even saying that some of the best entertainment writing was going on in the 1990s. Of course, that reality television came along and squandered any kind of momentum that that had built up. But it was, it was really hard to find, uh, especially with dramas in the 80s. Uh, the nighttime soap was still... <laughs> Uh, huge with Dallas and Falcon Crest and Knott's Landing and Dynasty uh, and that was you know even L.A. Law had a certain soapy kind of of aspect to it Hill Street Blues though was you know kind of one of those forerunner forerunner dramas that uh, had some gravitas definitely had some more <laughs> realism you know Bochco who produced oh, yeah. who produced that show he he was kind of a driving force and also that. did Cop Rock <laughs> 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 what other kind of stuff have you been seeing on? I, I had to jump back just for one thing. The uh, when you were saying about how the the writing was great in the uh, dramas, I listened to a podcast on the Nerdist called the Nerdist Writers Panel or something, where they get TV writers from a bunch of different shows and they talk for like an hour every week. And 
they were saying on there, and it's something I also read somewhere else, is that right now, all these writers, since they stopped being doing sitcoms and started doing reality, all the writers from sitcoms who have been doing this, you know, for 20, 30 years and are all the best writers, you know where they are now? Kids shows. Really? Yes. They're all running, you know, these SpongeBob's and the Phineas and Ferb's and all these kind of things. They're the head writers. <laughs> and I was like, wow. I never watched those because I don't have kids, so I, I never would have guessed that. But, you know, that's a strange jump from you know, great sitcom writers of the, you know, the 80s and now <laughs> writing the kids' shows. So stay tuned for that episode when Gordon Jump tries to molest SpongeBob. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I'm going to squeeze you till all the water comes out. <laughs> That's not water. <laughs> well, for me, any conversation about the 1980s television, well, really the 1980s in general, but I mean, when you're talking about television, it's Miami Vice. Oh, yeah. And... Even though I'm a huge fan of Miami Vice, I think that its historical uh, significance mm-hmm. is recognized by a wider audience. I, I, th- I hope that I'm not just talking out of my ass as a fan, <laughs> that people understand what a watershed moment it was when, when that show hit the air. Are you talking about the way, how it influenced, like, Pop culture and style and fashion and all that, and also how it influenced television. Okay, because it was you know it was bringing a a, a film approach to television with uh, high end production values and you know cinematography and and mood and you know lots of stuff at night and. Something that casual followers might not realize is that in addition to the, you know, the bright colors of the fashion and, you know, the pastels and all that kind of influence is what a nihilistic show that it was. There were rarely happy endings, and it was this strange mashup of uh, very gritty stories uh, with an overwhelming sense of style that had never been seen on television. There's one... Um, famous uh, review of the show that says something along the lines of it's uh, the biggest thing to happen to television since color. <laughs> wow. So. Well, yeah, there is definitely, I think, what I remember most about it is the way it kind of looked like a long-form music video. Mm-hmm. I mean, that sense of style, that cinematography, and, and you know, the, the use of Contemporary rock songs. Contemporary artists in their music, which I think, am I wrong, is that they kind of started that also? I mean, I think it had been done before, where a, a rock song would... would but on a regular pop. basis, and but you to, have, to have, you know, to have them be integral parts of the plot and integrated as, you know, major pieces of score, basically? No, mm-hmm. I don't think that had been done before. And, and definitely not to that level. Yeah. yeah that was a... Yeah, I'll, I'll always remember the white coat and pastel mm-hmm. undershirt too. <laughs> and it, it came in with a bang, and it kind of left with a whimper. I mean, it it out it, it wore out its welcome. It it stayed on the air about two years too long. I think a lot of times, if you if you were aware of pop culture, 
you, you know, one of the things you'll probably think of is that they had its brown period. And it's like, no show should have to reference itself as having its own tones of color in it. Yeah, season three, the introduction of Earth Tones. That was... <laughs> it's like, really? And Crockett got a haircut. He had a <laughs> spiky haircut instead of a longer haircut. Ooh. And then Tubbs grew a beard. <sighs> Gasp. You know who actually... Because uh, you know, Michael Mann was the oh, yeah. big creative force behind that show. And he left after season two to start working on Crime Story mm. with Dennis Farina. And do you know who came in... Uh, on season three, then, and kind of took over as the showrunner, was Dick Wolf, who went on to become the god of law and order. Wow. I never would have guessed that. <laughs> hmm. So is that where, do you know if that's where Dick got his start? That I do not know. Seems like a, seems like an odd, well, I guess, you know, police and procedural, and he just sort of, you know, takes away all the color and, Cinematography, but if you're thinking, if you're thinking of Crockett in a white linen jacket with a turquoise or pink T-shirt underneath, you're thinking of season one or two. After the, after season one or two, that was not the look anymore. And season three got you know, earth tones and it was gritty, darker, a darker overall look. Season three was still a good season, but I think you kind of needed the the color to under. To, to tone down the grittiness of it, I mean, don't you think? I mean, I think uh, that... Yeah, definitely. The, the style and cinematography is kind of what helps go into that subject matter. In fact, on the blog, uh, mr80s.wordpress.com, uh, I put up a list of obscure facts about Miami Vice that I just generated, like, off the top of my head. Now, one of them that uh, is sticking to my head right now is a lot of uh, celebrities who went on to really big things that uh, appeared on the show in guest roles very early in their careers. Bruce Willis, Chris Rock, Julia Roberts. Gina, Chris Rock play thug? He did not. Oh, how nice. He did not. Way to go under the stereotype. So if you want to check out some interesting facts, uh, you can go to the blog and... Take a look at them. A couple of interesting things are about actors who almost played Crockett. Because, uh, you know, uh, Don Johnson uh, had had this nickname of, as being TV Poison because he'd done six pilots and none of them had gotten picked up. Like Ted McGinley? Yeah. <laughs> and so even though Michael Mann was pushing for Don Johnson, the network wanted an actor with proven television experience. Like... Larry Wilcox from Chips. Oh, no. No, that would not work. <laughs> and then later on in season three, when Don Johnson took off like a rocket and was holding out for more money, they threatened to replace him with Mark Harmon, hmm. who's on NCIS now and has been you know, a television actor for ages. Yeah, I mean, three decades, four decades. Summer school, great movie. Yeah. So, well, I could spend a whole hour talking about Vice, but I'll, <laughs> I'll concede the floor. All right, well, let's see. I'll go to <laughs> Perfect Strangers. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know how popular it was at the time. I think it was, you know, it seemed to last like six seasons. Or yeah, it was, a, it was a, top so, 20, a top 20 show, probably in the top 10 a couple of years. They did great physical comedy. 
and you know uh, the story being uh, Balki is from Mipos from Mipos some you know Middle Mediterranean Mediterranean there you go and he comes to live to uh, Chicago I think with his cousin Larry and try and you know fit into America so you know the whole fish out of water story but they they always seem to get into these sort of like I love Lucy esque wild madcap romps there was definitely a strong influence on that show they were kind of like the Lucy and Ethel which was uh, unexpected I mean you sort of think it's going to be more the fish out of water stuff but then they just sort of I remember there was a routine where they were working out in a uh, like a public gym or something and the the kind of physical stretching they did and the problems with the weights and the the way they interacted was just hilarious. I mean, it was almost Harold Lloyd esque in its <laughs> in its weirdness and uh, physicality. And uh, do you remember the Billy Bobka episode? <laughs> oh yes, that was Billy Bobkas were some kind of baked good that were that were known in repost that had this very complex process of making them perfectly like every step. From the types of ingredients to mixing the ingredients to the way that you rolled the dough to the way they had to be baked, it was very precise. And cousin Mary couldn't quite get the hang of it. And you know, hijinks ensued. And by the end, they had dough and flour and stuff all over. And I still to this day remember the Bibby Bobka song because part of these strict rules were you had to sing the Bibby Bobka song as you were making them, and it was to the tune of Limbo Rock. It's when you're rolling out the dough, just be sure to roll it slow. If you make the dough too quick, baby Bob can make you sick. When you put the filling in, just be sure to wear a grin. When you smile at what you bake, baby Bob can turn out swell. <laughs> wow, there we go. <laughs> I don't know who's for rights on that. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to call that one fair use. <laughs> yeah, so that was... that was. Do you remember the uh, the advent of dramedies in the 80s? This was, <laughs> this, this was this revolutionary concept, this dramedy. It's, okay, so it's going to be a half-hour show, and it's going to be kind of funny, but there's not going to be a laugh track. Hmm. So you had Hooperman with uh, John Witter, yes. which was an excellent program, and I can't believe it's not on DVD. Because I mean, John, John Witter is a beloved, beloved television superstar. He's also Clifford in the Clifford uh, TV show for kids. Oh, really? He's the voice of Clifford. I wonder who's doing it now. Uh, I don't know if they make any new ones. Because, um, of course, you know, John Witter... Passed. passed away a number of years ago. The Hooperman, uh, Frank's Place with Tim Reed. Oh, wow. Forgot that. Where um, Tim Reed plays a stuffy college professor who inherits a Creole restaurant in New Orleans. No Johnny, Fe- no Johnny Fever? <laughs> oh. <laughs> and uh, The Days and Nights of Molly Dodd. Oh, yes. Was, was another one. So she's, on, of, uh, she's on Fringe now. Yes. Blair Brown? Blair Brown, there you go, thank you. Uh, so that was you know, kind of the, the hot thing for a while there in the, in the mid to late 80s. People thought it was going to revolutionize television. Another thing was the return of the anthology series. 
with amazing stories. Uh, the reboots of Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Remember the George Burns Comedy Week? No. Uh, so that was another you know, kind of, it had been quite a while since anthology shows had, <laughs> had, had been on television. Yeah, boy, I remember, uh, I had amazing stories on there, too, because that was another one of those things I remember from the, uh, from the 80s. I remember the first episode where... Ghost Train. Yeah. Well, actually, hmm, I was thinking of the one with the airplane. There was a, a, a kid who was the uh, bottom gunner in a plane, hmm. and something happened, so he couldn't get out of the plane. So if they landed the plane, he they were going to kill him. So he was an artist, and he started drawing things, and he drew wheels, and the wheels ended up materializing into the thing and saving them all. Yeah, amazing stories, you know, based strictly on the fact that uh, Steven Spielberg was producing the show. And I think this might have been his first foray into television post-cinematic fame, because you know, he got kind of started in TV. I think that was kind of his, his triumphant return to television. And based strictly on the fact that he was a producer of the show, NBC picked it up for two seasons right out of the gate. And uh, the show sucked. <laughs> and they were stuck with it. Well, and something else I read was that uh, Lucas um, was wanting to do tests on special effects. So he uh, let Spielberg use ILM for their special effects, but they wanted to do new things, to try different things. So it seems like the speculation I was reading is that they were kind of, you know, specking an idea and then saying, okay, how can we use special effects to do something interesting? Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you kind of stop the process to try and throw in special effects, mm -hmm. you kind of ruin it. Yeah. <laughs> I remember the hype. I mean, the hype oh, about... The, the the debut of that was just yeah. huge, and I I can't even remember who starred. It was Ghost Train was the name of the first episode. I've got John Lithgow in my head, but I could be totally wrong about that. And just you know the hype, the hype, the hype. I don't even remember the story, but it was being hyped as this kind of like Twilight Zone, but with a family friendly component because of the whole Spielberg thing. Mm -hmm. It's just going to be this transcendent. It's going to be like you know E.T. on your television for a half hour every week. And I remember sitting down and, and watching that first episode with just that excitement of, oh my God, this is going to be unlike, unlike anything we've ever seen on television. And I watched it and it was over and I was all, that blew. <laughs> that just blew. It was like, it was like a it was like a rough outline for a Twilight Zone episode that Rod Serling would have wiped his ass with. <laughs> Rod Serling would have gone, oh, this is terrible. Now, did that premiere after the Super Bowl? <laughs> Good question. I don't know. I was just thinking that, that I think that's probably where they started. I remember, like, the 18 premiered after the Super Bowl. Yeah. I think that one did, too. So, you know, now every year... You know, when you when you watch some incredibly lame TV show, usually sometimes they're good, but you can have the '80s to thank for someone coming up with that idea that they just won't get rid of. Speaking of the A team, you know, Fonzie didn't jump the shark. He got the crap beat out of him by a black guy with a mohawk. <laughs> it was Mr. T that killed Fonzie because Happy Days had been a ratings juggernaut for like eight or nine years when the A-Team premiered up against it and just trounced the living crap out of it. And that's kind of when the Ted McGinley years 
began. That's an interesting side note about the A-Team, is that you know, it premiered in 82, oh. and up against this powerhouse, and just absolutely creamed it. Well, I, I remember watching the A-Team a lot, so... It really appealed to kids, and you remember all the, the talk about the violence in the show, and... Oh, yeah. I can I'd compare that to anything that's on the TV now. You watch an episode of the 18 now, it's like sort of like watching a Tom and Jerry cartoon. I mean, that's what, that's the level of violence that was in it. So car- cartoon of the violence. Over the top. No one, no bloodshed, but, you know, those big uh, explosions. explosions and everyone's always leaping. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's like they paid 27 people just just practice your leaping. You have to leap really well from the explosion. Oh, and that's one of those shows that uh, I don't think holds up that well because it's just it's so simple it's so it's so formula. Yeah, yeah. The, I I like you know saying that uh, I've seen so much TV that it's not you know I know where it's going. I just hope it's a good ride. <laughs> and those are just too obvious. I mean the. the at the time, when I was a kid, you didn't really mind it that much. But you know, watching it—if you watched—if they did that thing now, it would not, it would not get any ratings because people would just expect. Unless they had forensic science in it. Oh, it's actually very similar to the forensic shows in that the, the forensic shows definitely follow the formula. Oh, they do, but they usually they flesh out the characters more because even the characters were a caricature. Yeah. So you, types. Know, you can still live, you know, nowadays you can live, you know, uh, in the characters. I mean, I, I watch Bones now, and, you know, even when the show procedural part isn't that good, the characters, I still want to see what they're doing. And, you know, with an A-team, B.A. freaks out about flying, you know. You had you had uh, you had Hannibal, who was the crafty mastermind. You had Face, who was the slick ladies' man. You had the nut. You had B.A., who was a badass, and then you had Murdoch, Murdoch who was the you know the the loose cannon, the crazy guy who'd do anything. Very not loose of a cannon. Very uh, you know very tightly drawn. Yeah, caricatures. Did you ever see the uh, remake that they did? The movie? Yeah. I will say that if you're a fan of big, dumb action movies, the 18 movie is one of the best big, dumb action movies that's been made in the last 10 years easily. Wow. It was so much better than it had any right to be. <laughs> was it ironic? No. Okay. They just, they kind of, you know... They played it straight down the line. I think uh, getting Liam Neeson to play Hannibal was a masterstroke because he brings such authority to any role that he plays, and he really kind of kept it centered as a lot of the chaos was was going around. He kind of made you believe it enough to to buy into it. And Bradley Cooper was a good was a good face man. They really kind of expanded on that whole playboy kind of uh, aspect of the character. But they did exactly what we said they would have needed to do to put it into the modern days, flesh out the characters. Yeah, and uh, it was it was it was a great ride. It reminded me a lot of True Lies, oh. where it's just kind of like you know set piece after set piece after set piece. But it was it's very well, 
very well connected and uh, good movie. Really, I mean, it's not. I was completely not expecting you to say that. Not an Oscar winner. You know, it's not going to change your life. You're not going to feel like you've learned anything after you watch it. But as far as entertainment goes, especially big budget studio entertainment, you could do a lot worse. Well, that's good. And I say that as a guy who goes into all these remakes thinking, oh, God. <laughs> well, I saw the remake of Arthur because I really like Russell Brand. And that was awful. Mm. And I loved the original. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I, you know, when my folks had HBO and that thing was running, you know, 20 times a month or something, I'd try and watch all of them. It's just, I really liked that movie. Little little movie. But even though I don't really like Liza Minnelli. But I liked the movie. I liked and she, and she was good in that, too. She was. She actually very plausibly played a, you know, down on her luck girl from the wrong side of the tracks. Which, and she obviously was, was very much not. <laughs> and Debbie Moore was an absolute, you know, comedic acting treasure. I mean, we, we lost, we lost a lot when he passed away. Oh, and and he's, he's very, he's little known these days. He's, he's just so much of, the, of his time. Uh, that people don't really realize just what a he lit, a, he lit up the screen. Well, he's one of those guys who could hand the phone book to and he could make it entertaining. <laughs> he probably did that bit at some point. <laughs> but we're not talking about TV anymore. <laughs> Sidetrack. Uh, uh, two shows that I'm always championing. In fact, and I'll start with, they're both sitcoms. I I always say that it's the greatest sitcom ever. And people who like I Love Lucy or Seinfeld usually get all over my shit. (laughs) Silver Spoons. I think Silver Spoons is the greatest sitcom ever. 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 (laughs) So please, lambaste me. I, I, I don't even remember it that well. <laughs> I mean, right now I can close. I can see the the train and the uh, video games, and I can remember the layout of the house. And I remember Erin Gray because she was hot. <laughs> um, and I remember uh, Fonzo Ribeiro mm-hmm. who went on to Fresh Prince. Um, and I remember an episode where they did something with a green laser light. For a school project. The science fair, yes. <laughs> and and uh, who was his grandpa? John Houseman. John the Houseman. great John Houseman. Yeah, so I remember... Anybody out there remember John Houseman? Remember the Smith Barney commercials? They own it! <laughs> but that's about it. I mean, I don't really remember stories or plot lines or anything. Well, it's... I mean, obviously, when I say it's the greatest sitcom ever, I say it a little tongue-in-cheek because I realize that you can very easily poke holes in that. And it's, it's relatable to a very small segment of humanity. It's relatable to white boys who were pre-adolescent, which is exactly what I was when that show debuted. And so that's why it resonates so much with me. It, it, oh, yeah. it, it occurred at the exact right time in my life. But, uh, you know, the it's... You know, uh, Joel Higgins plays the dad. Uh, I think he didn't even realize that he had a son. And the kid's played by Ricky Schroeder, and he's in boarding school. 
and the kid hates boarding school, and so he sneaks out of boarding school and comes to live with his father, and his father doesn't even know that he has a kid, and his father has inherited all kinds of money and is kind of a kid himself. And so the original setup of the show is that you've got this very precocious son who is very adult and responsible and this very childlike father and the two of them come together and live together and learn about each other and it, it evolved pretty quickly into a show that you're very much revolved around the life of Ricky and, and his friends but but Joe Higgins did a lot of heavy lifting on that show because he uh, you know the character did kind of have to show some evolution into fatherhood and responsibility and all that stuff and he did a good job with it and it, it also had very special episodes one of the worst of all time was from the first season where at Christmas they find a family living in a cave and so it's supposed to teach you the value of sharing and all that kind of stuff they're living in a cave Ch- their, their child played by Joe Lawrence who of course <laughs> contractually had to play a child at every television show <laughs> Uh, then the the second show, they're, they're, they're living in a cave, yeah. like they're just like feral. I mean, <laughs> no, the, the dad lost his job, and so of course, well, where are you going to live? Well, we'll just throw a rug down. They did throw a rug down, <laughs> and they live in this cave. What makes a home? Everyone knows that. <laughs> It's terrible. It's terrible. <laughs> it might be the worst, very special episode of any show of all time. Oh, God. That's, that's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> not an alley, not just running down the public bathrooms. We're just going to pick this cave. <laughs> it's just pretty lovely. And of course, it's a, it's, a, it's a Hollywood set cave with, like, high ceilings. It's not like something that you've got to wiggle into on your belly like a cave would normally be. <laughs> and then my, my favorite, uh, second favorite uh, sitcom of all time is Benson. <laughs> Benson, wow. I haven't seen that in a long time. I know that they rerun that now. But. Which is a show that was on forever. I mean, it was on for like eight or nine seasons. And uh, nobody remembers it. <laughs> well, it was a spinoff from Soap, right? I mean, I'm not going to Benson was the Tate's butler. But how did, he, did you ever do, you remember how they transitioned him from that butler to whatever? Yes, the governor. Um, the governor and Benson was cousins with Jessica Tate. And so Benson goes to work as the sort of house manager of the governor's mansion. <laughs> and then, uh, as all house managers do, he eventually becomes budget director and lieutenant <laughs> governor. <laughs> And in the final episode, is actually running for governor against the governor. Wow. But it's one of those shows that I personally feel never jumped the shark. <laughs> it it was always, always had a really strong ensemble cast. Uh, certain cast members kind of moved in and out over the years, but they always were able to find uh, the right pieces. <laughs> and... Uh, it's just it's a it's a fun show. It's just one of those shows to you know sit down and you watch it and it entertains you and it's not annoying and uh, it's it's well written. Was it political? No, I mean you never found out uh, what party the governor was with. You never found out uh, even what state. It was just you know, a southern state. I think it was kind of modeled after Georgia, but they never really said. Because I remember being 
you know, like with some sort of government or something like that. But I never remember it being at all political, which seems totally odd that why would you put him in that situation if you never use the situation? I think it's because the situation allowed, uh, in its simplest form, it allowed them to introduce Benson into a situation where he's going to encounter a lot of stuffed shirts that he gets to Make cut down with his uh, folksy, <laughs> acidic wit. But then kind of on top of that, more than that, I think it's also it's an opportunity to bring disparate people together. Because in politics, you know, you often find people from different backgrounds all of a sudden finding themselves working on the same team toward a common goal. So it kind of makes sense. I remember two things about that. The, there was a uh, a guy on there who was kind of the uh, uptight Manager or something like that. Yes, and he and Endicott the third played by Renee Abizinger. He was on. Uh, I was just watching uh, Deep Space Nine. Mm -hmm. It was that one Star Trek show that I never watched. So I was watching the uh, episodes on Netflix, and he's good and probably better than everyone else. But it still wasn't that good a show. But he was on there, and then Tracy Gold's sister, Missy. You know, is she the one that was anorexic? No, Tracy. Tracy was anorexic. Okay. So, well, Missy is actually much hotter than Tracy, but I guess she just got out of acting. I don't know. Hmm. I wonder where she is now. I don't know. Maybe she's helping Peter, Peter Scolari with his <laughs> <laughs> the dealership. She's the, she's the receptionist in Scolari Chevrolet. <laughs> Perfect. Um, well, I, I didn't put it on here, but I, um, my... I have to say my favorite TV show of the 80s was Moonlighting. I love Moonlighting. That's, uh, that's a show worth discussing. Yeah. Oh, wow. I loved it as well. Yeah, that was... Uh, do you remember what day it came on? Was it Tuesdays? Yep. Tuesdays at 9. Yeah, because it was right before 30-something. If you say so. And uh, that, wow. That was Bruce Willis, Sybil Shepard. She was a... Rich heiress who lost her money and just happened to have the only thing left to be a detective agency. So, of course, rather than selling it, she just decides to run it with David Addison. <laughs> and hilarity ensues. Wow. Um, I still, you know, I have the seasons on DVD. I think the first, first and second season on DVD. And uh, I've gone back and watched them, and I still love it. I mean, I just... I, I love it as well. Watched every episode as it originally aired. Even the shitty ones at the end. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, the problem that I have in retrospect is i am not gone back. Because I've, I've toyed with the idea, you know, I should, I, why don't I get these DVDs? Mm -hmm. uh, but it seems like that show jumped the shark so many times. <laughs> it, it just started getting really... Tangled and weird, because, you know, okay, when did it jump the shark the first time? Was it when they got serious about the sexual tension between David and Maddie? Or did it jump the shark when they finally did it? Or did it jump the shark when she got pregnant? Or did it jump the shark when she started going out with, was it Mark Harmon? Mm -hmm. And all that kind of stuff that just kind of took away from the, what made the show so enjoyable at its core, which was that kind of uh, anarchic... Uh, Freewheeling, 
repartee and awesome tete-a-tetes and the you know the 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 strange left turns that the plot would take and mm-hmm. you know the breaking of the fourth wall and you're know, doing the the crazy theme episodes <laughs> you know, that's the stuff that i remember but it seems like my my remembrances have been diluted by just all of the creaky problems that seem to crop up. So, I mean, what's, well, what do you think about that? The first two seasons, and I think it must have been like a mid-season replacement or something, because the you know the two uh, first two seasons were only like three or four discs. So that is where the genius was. You know, I think pretty much once you know once you get into three and I think four was where the the wheels went off. And we still had some good episodes in there, but uh, the first two seasons, I mean, uh, they're just some of the best, you know, television uh, of the 80s. I mean, they're just, they're so well, well done in writing, in uh, preparation, and the, 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 the way they, you know, uh, the characters interact, the stories that are weird and interesting. I mean, it's just... I just don't think it gets any better. <laughs> I mean, I can, uh, uh, well, I can just pop into my head. I can remember the, uh, where they're all racing around in, uh, wedding dresses and they slide into soap and, uh, the, uh, hot air balloon chase, the, uh, the, the cross-dressing women with the, uh, veils and just, so many good episodes. Then, the, you know, the, when they did the Taming of the Shrew, when they did the black and white episode, and they had Sybil Shepherd sing. I mean, I just... Was the black and white one, was that Big Man on Mulberry Street, or was that a different one? Mm-hmm. It was a different one. Well, Glenn Gordon Karen was the uh, the producer and the writer of that show. Mm-hmm. And I I know he's gone on to do other things. Yeah, for a while, they really kept referencing him in, you know, you know, so-and-so from Moonlighting, but uh, I, I can't think of anything I'm sure he's done well. Because the, the thing about that show was, uh, he used to say at the time, you know, they, they were they were notorious for never being able to actually get 22 episodes out of a season. <laughs> That's very true. They were always, like, turning in episodes late. There, uh, there was at least one instance where... A new episode was scheduled to air, and then it didn't because it wasn't done in time. Uh, and they didn't get along. The Sybil and uh, Bruce Willis didn't get along very well. And then there was another episode where it ran so short, they had to bring in... Well, it, their solution was to bring in Orson Welles to do an introduction to it to make it longer. Uh, and, you know, he Karen used to always say that it was because of all the dialogue, that that's why it was taking so long to do the scripts and then do the shooting and stuff. He would he would say commonly, uh, he would say that uh, most TV shows at the time, uh, for a 60-minute drama, the scripts were 50 to 60 pages long, and most moonlighting scripts were 90 pages long. I don't know if any of that's true, but it's kind of a testament to how important that show was to ABC that they put up with all the shenanigans. Because, like I said, I don't think they ever got a 22-episode season no. out of that guy. <laughs> there were always problems. but And it's unheard of for a show, to, a TV show on a major network to play it that fast and loose. And I don't think, I can't remember anyone, except Roseanne seemed to get away with a lot of shit when she was queen of the networks yeah. for a while. But, I mean... 
very rarely does anyone, you know, get that kind of uh, um, I don't know, leeway yeah. <laughs> anymore. Uh, looking at Glenn Gordon Karen's Wikipedia, um, since Moonlighting, jeez, uh, a couple of movies, Clean and Sober, Picture Perfect. Oh yeah, if you uh, if you want to hear a good story, listen to the uh, early podcasts for uh, Jay Moore's More Stories, where he I think it, he he teases it for like the first four or five episodes, but he finally goes, you know, an entire podcast on how he got the role in Picture Perfect, which was a star vehicle for uh, Jennifer, Aniston. Jennifer Aniston. And uh, Glenn Gordon Cannon uh, saw, <laughs> as he explained it, when you're doing a, uh, a read for a, uh, for a part, you're basically fucking them up because they already have an idea of who they want. But they have to see a bunch of people. So you're just in their way. So, you know, as he tells the story, they had someone completely different picked for this role. And then he does this, um, uh, I can't think of the word for it, audition. Uh, and he knocks it so out of the park that Glenn says, you have to be this role. I'm going to champion you. You're getting this role. You're going to do this. And so I mean, it's like an hour-long story, but it's a great story, so... Check that out, More Stories Podcast. Uh, now and Again was a TV show with... Uh, Seal Award. Seal Award, there you go. And, oh, Medium. So really the highlight of his career is Moonlighting, because the rest of that stuff is kind of crap. Well, before that he did Remington Steel, Fame, the TV show, and Taxi. Oh, only one episode. So basically Remington Steel, he wrote a few episodes, but yeah. Moonlighting was it. Although Medium's been around for forever. I don't know how the thing hangs on. That's one of those shows that I think old people watch, like Jag. You know, Jag stayed on the air for ten years, and nobody ever knew anybody that watched it. Ten. My folks did. <laughs> they they watch everything. That's true. They love procedurals. They watch all the CSIs. How are you on time? We're at 50 minutes. A show that I think pairs really well with the A-Team... Mm-hmm. For being a show that really, really captured the attention of America's children during that era. Hmm. And then when you try to go back and watch it now, you're like, really? This kept me entertained? <laughs> Night Rider. <laughs> yeah, that's really true. <laughs> we all loved that show. We couldn't get enough of it. <laughs> it's garbage. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't... Yeah. Having seen that... After the fact, you're, uh, yeah, it is one of those things where you're like, how were we entertained? Were we, were we on all drugs? Like, <laughs> they drugged us. That's what it is. They drugged us. Is the idea of a talking car that enthralling? <laughs> the one that sit through 50 minutes of crap every week? But he's talking about his accent. I mean, come on. My call. <laughs> Yeah, that's true, though. I am. And actually, it wasn't a British accent. It was just a pissy accent. Yeah, that's true. It was, uh... I was, I was going to call him Anthony Daniels, so that's C-3PO. <laughs> William Daniels. It was William Daniels and his pissy little... That's true. British, but I, was, I always equated that. But, hmm. Just uptight, snotty. Michael, I'm a gay butler. <laughs> yeah, really, if you're a hot rod, 
you know, car, wouldn't you have a better voice? Kind of a cool, manly, you know, phones on steroids type voice. I mean, you know, <laughs> hey, look at me, come on. <laughs> There's that muscle car. What did I get? I, oh, uh, Magnum P.I. I have, uh, which is a show we've not even talked about. That was another show that a lot of people say never jumped the shark. Um, but I'm, I have a Magnum P.I. DVD, and one of the uh, bonuses... Because it's 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 released by Universal and Universal's bonuses, their bonus material sucks. <laughs> and so the bonus material is an episode of Knight Rider. Oh jeez! So, okay. so I watched it, and there's this uh, scene where I think I think Kit is trying to bust Michael out of prison, and so Kit jumps over the wall into the yard to to bust Michael out of prison, and. <laughs> You can plainly see as he's making his approach, because, you know, your Kit doesn't have anybody driving him because he's Kit the smart car, where you can see that they have cut holes in the driver's seat, and you can see the arms <laughs> sticking to the driver's seat, <laughs> holding the steering wheel. <laughs> wow. You know, Mythbusters would do all those automatic robot things, you know. Wasn't that long ago? Can you see the MythBusters episode? Can a car really drive itself over a wall <laughs> with arms? <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, I don't know. Uh, Magnum PI. Did you ever watch that show? Oddly enough, never. I mean, I'm not even sure if I sat through an entire episode, but it was on forever. And I like Tom Selleck. Even. <laughs> <laughs> played on the song about him. <laughs> that, that, that show, it was, it, was a, um, it was done by a fellow named uh, Donald P. Belisario, who created Quantum Leap. Which I enjoyed. And I th you, might, you might want to look him up, too, because I think he's still active in current television. But what he is kind of known for is taking um, existing formulas... And then populating them with very well-drawn characters, hmm. and he's got a reputation for you know, for strong writing, strong character development. And Magnum PI kind of has all those hallmarks. I mean, the whole reason that Magnum PI existed was because um, Hawaii Five-O had ended its run, and before they shut down their Hawaiian production office. They decided to take one more run at another TV show based in Hawaii, and so that's how we got Magnum P.I., wow. and if it hadn't worked, they probably just would have shut down the production office, and <laughs> and that would have been the end of it, but it turned out to be a hit and you know, ran for, for eight seasons. Well, as we're uh, speaking about who the hell watched JAG, well, obviously people who like Donald P. Balsario, because he is the mastermind behind JAG and NCIS. Oh, Donald, how you disappoint me. I've never actually watched Jag. It just looked like a show that I wouldn't want to watch. I've seen it a couple times when my folks were watching it. Not really exciting. It's just one of those shows that's kind of there to take up space between the advertisements. <laughs> well, I'm sure my folks would, would disagree with that. But uh, it's, a me, walk, yes. it's like Walking Texas Ranger. It's basically like it's a procedural, only it's a Navy procedural. Um, okay. I don't. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't. I don't find CSI's entertaining, and you know, uh, Bones is more witty and wacky than a more normal procedural. Because I just don't think they're that. I mean, I've seen all those CSI's 
from my folks too, and yeah, I, I don't get it. Let's talk a little bit about TV movies because this kind of gets back to what you were talking about with the very special episodes. Mm-hmm. Um, the eighties were when the television movie really kind of it was, it was almost like a new golden era for for television movies, and there had been you know landmark shows. Uh, in in the 70s uh, with, uh, I think, Sybil was uh, a TV show. There was one with Martin Sheen. Uh, God, I wish I could remember the title, but it was it was the first TV movie uh, about a gay couple. Uh, of course, Brian's song from the 70s. Oh, yeah. uh, but in the, in the 80s, we had a lot of these, you know, heavy-hitting, issue-oriented shows Uh that, that had to do with the climate of the times, some political, some social. So, for example, you had like an early Frost with Aiden Quinn, which was the first uh, TV movie about AIDS. Uh, Something About Amelia with Ted Danson, which was about incest. I mean, can you imagine a TV movie about incest? But what I really want to get to are, are two of my all-time favorite TV movies that both uh, were heavily... Uh, invested in the political climate of the time, which, of course, there's The Day After, which was about the nuclear threat, and then a movie called Special Bulletin. Hmm. I remember Special Bulletin. Which uh, is just a fantastic TV movie. Its hook is that it's done War of the World style, where it plays out as a news broadcast that interrupts regular programming. And it's about a terrorist group that has hijacked a boat. And the boat either already has nuclear arms on it or they have created their own nuclear arms and they've got it pointed toward this major metropolitan city. And they're asking for all uh, nuclear warheads to be disarmed within a certain amount of time or else they're going to set off the nuclear weapons so people can see what nuclear war is really like and as it you know kind of plays out as a news report it really you know, gives you that it's just it's a fantastic fantastic movie but yeah the day after obviously is is better remembered and i mean that thing was was huge yeah i hated it though i i just uh we had to watch it and you know because we were going to discuss it in class the next day so you know, I, I would never have watched it otherwise. Cause it just seems so heavy-handed, and it's, you know, we're going to be impressive. Sit and watch, be impressed, <laughs> shut the fuck up, and be impressed. We're going to tell you a story. It's going to have weight and relevance, and it's going to blow your fucking mind. Sit there and shut up. Just, <laughs> fuck, shut up. Leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> it did have pretty decent special effects for a team. I mean, they spent a lot of money on it. And a lot of money on it. And a lot of money to advertise it. And Yeah. <laughs> Not the reaction I was expecting, <laughs> but all right. Well, it, it seemed like, you know, uh, I, 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 to me, I, I just really remember the heavy-handedness of the, the ad campaigns and how they just kept trying to convince even schools that this was so important, you have to watch every person you know, you have to tell them to watch it. It is going to be remembered forever. This is a point in history. You have to watch this television show. It's television. Yeah, you're, you're right about that. <laughs> um, and it, 
But we still remember it. <laughs> well, and, but I, part of what we remember is that hype. Yeah. Um, I think it is probably better to remember for the hype than for the actual program. I mean, if you ask people to... Tell you what the story was? I remember yeah, to tell you what the story was, but, the, but they still remember it, and that's why they remember it. But I also think that it is a... It, it, it's, it's a... We would do well to consider the fact of what a realistic touchstone of its era it is, because at the time that that movie was on, and I believe 83, perhaps 84, uh, we did not know that the end of the Cold War was just around the corner. And that whole nuclear fear, which had started in the 50s, was just at an absolute fever pitch. That is true. In the early 80s, people were convinced that Reagan was a cowboy who just wanted to blow shit up. And that movie and the hype surrounding it really captures that palpable fear that we all lived under that we could be vaporized in a nuclear attack any day. And it was a very real threat. Mm -hmm. Now, today's young people are growing up with the exact same thing, except for it's one of the terrorists going to get me. Mm -hmm. Now, if there's a lesson to be learned from all of this, I will leave it to greater minds than me. But I wonder if the lesson is that there's always a boogeyman. <laughs> there always is, and there always will be. And maybe we'd be well served by... Sorry, I forgot to plug the laptop in. So. <laughs> Are we losing juice? <laughs> it's, that was the noise that we have 10 minutes left of juice. So. <laughs> I'm making this big serious point. <laughs> Good Lord. Way to undercut me, dude. That's like thought blocking. It's not cock blocking. I just got thought blocked. <laughs> so sorry. Okay. Insert profound statement here. <laughs> <laughs> and with that I think we're done yeah I think that is well how about we touch on this thing just being, we had a uh, we had a fan from the uh, Chicago area that had uh, wanted to ask the question of was uh, why not include Def Leppard's Hysteria in the Blockbuster Albums episode this is a reference to our our last show where we talked about what we had done with the Blockbuster album, which, by my definition, uh, was it was this this era in the middle '80s where albums were peeling off five, six, seven singles, were ruling the charts for years at a time, winning the Grammy for Album of the Year three years in a row with uh, Thriller, Can't Slow Down, No Jacket Required, and we talked probably about ten, maybe a dozen albums that we identified as being blockbuster. So the question was, why was Hysteria not on that list, right? Yes. And I, I, I would because I was even thinking, why didn't we put NXS Kick on that list? And we didn't really talk enough about George Michael's faith. So, I mean, I think it definitely would qualify. Yeah, I would think so, too. I, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, well, that's, that's a good one. I completely didn't even think of that. Kick really had that many albums, that many songs on there? Cause it's borderline, but it did have four. Okay. So, and it was a big, big album. Yeah, yeah. annoyingly big. I would, <laughs> I would call it Blockbuster Junior, but 
It, it probably is in the conversation. But, I mean, hysteria, uh, let's see here. Okay, so we had uh, women. Um, rocket. Uh, rocket. Animal. Uh, hysteria. Love bites. Armageddon it. Word six already. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it definitely... It definitely would qualify as a blockbuster. I would say that's a, that's a good call. So if you have any other questions, you can always write us in and, or talk to the Facebook page. Yeah. Send us an email at uh, mr80s at rocketmail.com. Uh, and we'll remind you every week in all instances we're spelling out Mr. M-I-S-T-E-R. And we're spelling 80s. 80s. So, Mr. 80s at rocketmail.com. Visit our Facebook page at Mr. 80s and go to our blog at mr80s.wordpress.com. And speaking of Def Leppard, I just got the um, the new Rolling Stone, which is you know they're once again counting down the top 100 guitarists of all time because it might not be Jimi Hendrix at number one this time, okay? And Jimmy Page is on the front cover. Joe Elliott from Def Leppard is starting to look like Jimmy Page. <laughs> it's kind of uncanny how much Joe Elliott looks like Jimmy Page on the cover of uh, this Rolling Stone. It's a picture from the 70s, obviously. Oh, I'll check that out. Maybe someday he'll, he'll be as well-remembered. Yeah. No. Probably not. <laughs> so, hey, uh, good night, uh, Joe Elliott. <laughs> Whatever you 